All right, welcome back. This is the Uptime Podcast. This is episode seven. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here remotely by lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how you doing? Hey, Dan. Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. A little more energy this week. A lot of rain, but it didn't deter me. I got some good smells going on in my in my place at the moment. I got some <laughs> pine tree scented wax melt or something. So... It you smells know, like the outside. It smells like seen. Smells like the forest. Yes. <laughs> so doing all right. Doing all right. How are you doing? Uh, well, we're, you know, we're just kind of in quarantine mode. The, the governor extended our quarantine till May 18th. So we thought we were going to get off uh, out of this quarantine sometime next week. That that was the original plan. I think of May 4th or 5th was the original date so now we're out to may 18th and everybody's going stir crazy the, massachusetts has had a little bit of uptick in uh in coronavirus cases new cases so the the issue is massachusetts is a very long state and very narrow states and and boston's near the water and we live on the far opposite end in fact we're on the state line so when things happen in boston what tends to happen is the whole state ends up uh, doing the same thing so Boston being the capital of Massachusetts decides that there's a there's a an issue in Boston for coronavirus so the whole state shuts down so mm. we on the western part of the state are just kind of wondering what's going on and when we can kind of get back to work in fact today I thought I was just going to and from the office and thought well there's a lot of cars on the road today so I kind of wonder if people are starting to uh, hit the streets again you see a lot of masks everybody's got a mask on and the grocery yeah. stores are full of masks you see people walking up and down the streets which you didn't see a week ago so people are starting to get out and about a little bit i think in our case it's it's pretty calm in this part of the state yeah well so what's your opinion so we're i was talking about this on, on one of my other podcasts uh the idea of you know business is opening back up and people are starting to get like you said more than just a rumbling but i mean some people are protesting obviously about you know we need to get to be, we need to get back to work yeah. let us take on the risk whatever um obviously I don't know why barbers have been like the highlighted ones. Uh, I don't know why like I've seen a salon owner like on the yeah. news. Like, and yeah. I, I get that. Like I have no issue with salons and barbershops opening up like small foot traffic. You know, I feel like that's yeah, reasonable. Not, if you're going to slowly, you know, let some businesses reopen, that seems yeah. completely fine. Like we, we can't be in this forever. Right. Right. We can't be in forever. Don't you worry more about being on a bus? Or being in a taxi, oh, than being a, I would too. Uh, those those places don't make any sense to me. I'm not going to a, a movie theater. I'm not going to a concert. But one on one with interaction, obviously, someone who's cutting your hair is going to be dealing with a lot of people from a lot of from the surrounding area. Typically, not coming from too far away, usually. Um, so we, I think it's just sort of a where the risk is and whether it's worth the risk. I think. One on one, where everybody's doing really well. I've seen a lot of hand washing. I've seen a lot of masks. I see yeah. a lot of people not touching their face. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you change their behavior and people's behaviors have changed, then you know it becomes a lot less of a risk. I think everybody's on, on high alert still. But it, you don't you don't see anybody to walk up to you and say hello. They they're six feet eight, six to eight, ten feet away. They're stopping to say hello. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fine. Well, and you start to think about it, like, what are the odds of the one person that I go spend, you know, a minute with? Like, if you're, if you're just, like, stop a random stranger on the street right now and just, like, sit down and have coffee with them. Like, what are the odds that that one person has coronavirus? You know what I mean? Low. Like, it's, it's very low. And especially in certain places, it's a lot lower. What's, what's weird in D.C. right now, 
they send out like if you follow Mayor Bowser, who I think is doing a really good job. Um, if you follow her Twitter account, she tweets out every day the new cases, like the overall mm-hmm. breakdown of ages, of deaths, of uh, cases by ethnicity, by age, like all these different stats. And unfortunately, and this is sad, um, more than half, I think, of the cases in D.C. are to African-Americans. And I think it's a lot because there's just a, a larger population in some of the, the more impoverished areas. Mm-hmm. And so the, they also show a breakdown of the, um, the, the eight D.C. wards. So the, you know, D.C. is broken up into eight wards. Yeah. And the four most low socioeconomic status wards have over 50% of the cases themselves. So it's clearly wow. it's concentrated in the, uh, in the poor areas, which is sad. And it's reflected in just in every bit of the stats. And then, so in my ward, which I'm more in the center of DC, like I'm, you know, a mile or two from the white house. And there's a lot more industry there. There's a lot more business. There's a lot more monuments, there's a lot more green space and it's a little yeah. more expensive to live there. Uh, Less crowded. Yeah. There's only 350 cases in my ward. And there's four four thousand in in DC right now, I think something like that. So, it's uh, it, it's really interesting the disparity. Like the three most expensive to live wards have a very low incidence compared to the overall. You know, like one ward has as many as three wards combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really weird here in DC. Um, but you start to think about like, again, if like a, a high end salon opens up in the middle of the city, is that a big risk? Certainly not. Um, yeah. and just like some of these smaller shops, but you know, if you walk in and out of a grocery store, there's a lot of risk, but obviously we need groceries. So it, it just right. really is a complex time, you know, and, uh, it's, are they going to open public transportation? There's a subway system in DC. Are they going to open, open that? The whole, that's been open the whole time. And I've gone Get on it. out. Yeah. And I've been on it a bunch of times on the subway. Don't feel unsafe at all because I have a whole car to myself. So <laughs> I haven't, I've only taken the Metro once in the last three weeks i think and even then it was the same thing like you walk in you swipe your card i literally don't touch a single thing i sit down uh put my hands on my lap there's no one in my car probably and then i get out the door opens for me i walk up the escalator swipe my card and i leave it's like it's almost like a touchless interaction and so but yeah it's been running because i mean that's that's a lifeline in the city people need the the subway to go places but they the do, same, but uh, same thing there. You don't see the only people you really see taking the subway besides me occasionally is just lower on lower income people, unfortunately. And so, so how's the, how's the Uber? Is, is Uber still running? I wouldn't take they... an Uber. And that's the other thing. It's like I'm you not, take the subway, but not Uber. Yeah, because I'm not touching anything and I'm and I can control how far away I am from other people in the, in the metro. Whereas, so it's in, a, it's whereas a, in the t- Uber, I'm in their car. Okay. Like I'm I know I'm going to be six feet from them in the back seat, but. I'm that distance from them no matter what. Whereas on the Metro, I can position myself in a huge empty subway station and in a huge subway car to be as far away from another human as I want. I feel like that's a relatively good choice. Well, I would have thought of it completely the opposite. I thought the the, the subways would have been shut. First, I thought the subways were shut down. But if they're not shut down, they would still have a pretty decent amount of traffic on them where mm-hmm. versus, Very you know, dead. versus Uber, which is sort of a one-on-one. So it would have been like 100 to 1 versus 1 to 1. Your bets are yeah. you're probably better off 1 to 1, even if you're a little bit closer. Yeah, which again, uh, that's, I mean, huh. lo- being, being logically consistent, exactly what I said before, like what are the odds that your Uber driver has it? But at the same right. time, you know, you start taking like, socioeconomic status into it maybe you think more uber drivers are likely to have it because they're driving around and you know rather than 
I don't know. It's a it's a huh. it's a fascinating discussion. Do um, they have any do they have any th- idea about the taxi drivers, Uber drivers? It doesn't matter. Uh, guys no, driving I, vans to the airport. Is there are no there cases? Idea. Oh, huh. I'd be, I'd yeah. be like, well, one of the things were exactly right because you are maybe touching different parts of the community, whether those people are running around different parts of the community or starting to pick up the, the virus or not. Wow. Yeah, okay. well, I, I think people, it seems like, and this is just kind of conjecture on my part, but I think people in D.C. who have the means are just staying home. They're not really going many places. Whereas mm-hmm. I would guess that Uber rides in the city are probably people that still need to go to work. And yeah. so... They're taking uh, Uber yeah. to go to work, which means they're working around other people, right? So maybe yeah. people who are taking Uber are more likely to be in contact with other people, more likely to then to pick it up, more likely then to give it to an Uber driver. Who knows? Mm. You know, it's just mm. all, again, it's all conjecture, but yeah. um, it's sad that, that I guess more of the have-nots are getting it. So you never no. want to see that, that trend. No. No. Um, but just more densely populated. And, you know, there's a large homeless population in D.C. And when I leave my apartment, go for a walk, I'm going to go for a run when we're done done filming tonight you know i'm going to run past a bunch of groups of people that are just outside either just you know shooting the breeze with each other or they're um you know just congregating just doing whatever or they're living outside there's a lot of tents in dc and so you just know that when you live outside you're just gonna you're gonna be more at risk because you're gonna be around other people so it's it's tough there's a lot of interesting factors that are some really sad and um it's just complicated. The whole thing's complicated. It, it, oh, yeah, it's really complicated. I just hope that we're on the, the downside of this. Or, or as we were told a month ago, we needed to flatten the curve. Uh, hopefully you guys are flattening the curve. Up here, we're, we're on, definitely on the downside. Or flat, and we've been flattened for a week or more. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think cases are slowly increasing in D.C. Um, I'm not super plugged into it. I'm just mm. kind of doing my thing. But yeah. it's... Wow. Uh, Again, I don't, people seem to be abiding it pretty well, but I think the homeless population and, uh, and just like the, the poor population, cause there is a, a big divide depending on where you live and the, mm. you know, DC yep. rent is very expensive. Yep. Oh it's, yeah. It's uh, I think there's just a bigger gap there than anywhere else. So when wow. you start to think of the, the, where I live exactly in the city, where are the, what are the rates like? There's mine are still very, very low, fortunately. So good. So anyway, but. But yeah, it's yeah. a it's an interesting, a lot of stuff going on. So in the wind turbine industry, we were just talking. Um, there was uh, one major uh, wind turbine damage that made a little bit of news. So what was the story uh, out in Cairo? Yeah, down in southeast Kansas, they had a, either a high wind situation, which I'm not sure that would be the right answer, or a lightning issue where a blade just really got destroyed and hit the nacelle and did a bunch of damage. So they're investigating down there to see what the issue is. Uh, obviously, they're going to go back and take a look at the weather data to see if there was a lightning strike nearby. And, and uh, obviously, it's going to take them a while to figure out exactly what happened. Plus, the the turbines out of operation, and they got a bunch of cleanup to do and repairs to do. So, I guess they got their hands full, especially now with all the coronavirus stuff. Now, Southeast Kansas is not the most populous place in the world. It's, it's the mecca of the world. That's where the technology. There's Everything a lot of, starts and stops. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of good people down there. Independence, Kansas. It's just Independence, Kansas is just sort of north of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you're kind of in that Oklahoma, Kansas uh, area, and it's it's a neat area, but it's not highly populated. So getting people out to this place to get this wind turbine fixed is going to be probably a big effort. 
Oh boy. Yeah. And like you said in this, there's probably just no timetable for that, right? No, no. Right. I think the first thing is to figure out what happened and then get everything disassembled, get another blade out there. If they're going to repair it, get another blade out there, get it installed, get in the cell fixed up. It's just like um, any sort of significant aircraft incident where you have a a breakage on an aircraft. You're you're sort of trying to decode what has just happened. So you, you catch everything and put it all back the way that it should be. It's a big effort. It's going to take a lot of man hours. So having, if it's a lightning strike, um, it's going to be very expensive uh, lightning strike for sure. So what is the cost typically if, if a, a wind turbine loses a blade? Like a million million bucks a blade typically? Well, no, 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 no. They're $100,000-ish dollars. Depending, well, it depends on the size. Uh, the larger they are, the bigger, the more expensive they are. But to replace one usually means bringing out a crane. Cranes are pretty expensive, depending if you can get a hold of one. Uh, now, you know, there should be a lot of them available, you'd think. But that's going to be 100-ish, maybe more grand to get the crane out there, depending on how, how big the wind turbine is, too, because the bigger they come, the fewer cranes there are. Uh, it's going to be a couple hundred grand, and especially when the blade comes off and hits in the cell and does some destruction up there, too. Then you're adding onto them the cost because you got to put a new nacelle cover on. You've got to fix all the equipment that got damaged when the parts of the blade came through. Hopefully, they didn't hurt the generator. And, you know, the worst case ones is when the blade goes bad and hits the tower and takes out the tower, and the whole thing comes collapsing down. That's a that's a loss right there. So they they still have a lot of work to do. I you know that's not a fun time. That's going to be a lot of a lot of extra work they weren't planning on doing right now. Could you pick a worse time for it to happen? No, you couldn't have. So you know it's just one of it's one of those uh, acts of nature, I guess, where you just have to deal with it. Yeah. Well, it could be producing jobs. So hey, if you want to go clean up this wind turbine, <laughs> um, you know, pick up all the pieces, throw them in a satchel. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe there's some true. work for you in Kansas. There's parts. And one thing about Kansas is it's windy, so whatever, whatever hit the dirt is probably it's blowing been scattered around. Scattered all over, yeah, Missouri yeah. and everywhere else. So. <laughs> and that's kind of that's a little bit north of Tornado Alley. Uh, Tornado Alley tends to be Wichita area and, and on the diagonal there, up to kind of Omaha, Nebraska. But uh, yeah, there's still a lot of wind down there. Kansas is always windy. I lived there for five years. I remember tool sets blowing down the driveway because of the wind. Yikes. Yeah, you're like, whoa, is it really that windy? Oh, yeah, it always blows 30 miles an hour. Welcome to Kansas. The well, first, how- thing you know, first thing you notice when you, when you move out of Kansas is it's not windy anymore. <laughs> yeah, wind, the wind is the worst. It's just like, it's the worst. If it's breezy, breezy's the best. Windy's the worst. Windy's, a, yeah. But it makes great power. I'll tell you that much. It makes great power. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so when, when these uh, wind turbines are damaged, how do these insurance claims go? I mean, I know you said you, you, in the past that wind farm owners are very cautious with insuring everything they can and so yeah. i think you, you mentioned that you stepped on uh to a wind farm and they made sure that you had insurance um to do yeah, that could, so yeah. um how how well do they they handle this stuff uh, from an insurance standpoint well everything's about uh mitigating risk uh so the times i've been to different wind turbine sites usually they want an insurance policy of a million dollars before you can even walk onto the facility to look at anything 
which I always think is odd because the reason I'm there is I'm trying to save them millions of dollars, yet I got to have a million dollars insurance policy. I'm not sure what I'm going to do while I'm there. That would cause a million you dollars trip, of damage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trip and maybe fall off of one. Maybe, <laughs> I, it, yeah. yeah you the wind turbines are pretty rugged. Then it falls over, then it falls over, <laughs> and it's just like you look around and. 11 have, have toppled over like dominoes and you <laughs> just, just like dominoes and then you slink into the bushes like homer simpson <laughs> that would be I'm, the only you know scenario do you know what i'm yeah. talking about that means yes. that's amazing <laughs> uh, that's that's the thing that kind of runs through your head like i don't know how i could do that much damage unless i set these things on fire and even then, yeah. even then i'm not sure but yeah, so, so everybody is, is risk uh, conscious and uh, with warranties and insurance policies, you got to have insurance on something like that. It's just like having insurance on your automobile or on your home. You're going to have insurance on it. And so you want to try to mitigate the, the amount of, of, of claims you're going to make, right? And the insurance company doesn't want you to make claims. So they want you to do the right thing, make sure you're maintaining everything. So it's kind of a yeah. vicious circle. It's just like with your automobile, right? They got those little uh, sensors you put in your cars now so they can track you to make sure you're not driving too fast or driving too erratically, and they give you discounts on your insurance. It's sort of a similar thing, right? So the, if you take good care of your wind turbines, don't have a lot of claims, in theory, your rates will go down. It's a, it's a marketplace like anything else. Well, speaking of, uh, of warranties, so what's the typical warranty period that you know, Windformer gets when he installs a you know, brand new wind turbine on his, on his property? And yeah, how does that so, work? so the 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 company that wants to install a new the, the developer, and so when the developer wants to install a new wind turbine site, typically the OEMs offer a warranty somewhere between two and five years. Five years, I, mean, I hear a lot more five years than I've heard in the past, but uh, uh, five year tends to be a very typical warranty period. So they have five years to sort of. Uh, I call it uh, uh, in the aircraft industry and other industries, computer industries, where it first heard it was uh, infant infant mortality. So as, as the as a new device starts, it's more likely to die in those first couple of months slash years, and at the very end of the life, it's in the middle. Once you get past those first couple of months and years, you're going to be in kind of stable territory. So hmm. uh, that's the highest risk points in that first, really, in the first couple of months when things tend to break. Why is that? Is that they're catching like big defects? Yeah, you're catching things. Yeah, you can catch things that are sort of manufacturing defects that you couldn't see. Uh, like if you had some defect in the blade, you couldn't inspect, and as you get it up, you start operating and you put the loads in the blades, and obviously those defects get amplified. Uh, same thing in electrical equipment. The uh, any kind of semiconductor device, you like to have burn-in time before you start using it because it's in that initial burning time when most of the devices will fail. Once you get past that burn-in time. Uh, you, you usually have very successful life. It's just like a new car. When you buy a new car, in that first six months, uh, if the, the motor rolls over dead, that's that's not great. You like so uh, that's why they offer those sort of warranties that are front front loaded. The first two years, you got a warranty. Your first three years, you're going to cover uh, ground to, to the top. So it's the same sort of thing in wind turbines. So as you get it, you want to make sure that you're in, you're covered for those first couple of years in case there's some sort of manu- manufacturing defect. Not necessarily at the OEM, but maybe from one of their suppliers that you couldn't visually see, and it just rears its ugly head in those first couple of months. So insurance is a big deal there. And so I've heard, you know, like some companies like SkySpecs that their inspections are, are helping some of these wind farm owners kind of tap into those warranties right before they run out. Like you want to get yeah. stuff repaired right before it runs out. Is that true? 
Yeah, so what you want to do before the warranty runs, runs, out, runs out, you want to get all the claims in. So if you do have some sort of OEM-related defect, you want to catch it before the warranty runs yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. Right? It's just like with a car. Before the car warranty runs out, you want to take it to the shop, make everything sure everything's okay before you continue on using the vehicle. The same thing happens on wind turbines. The problem with wind turbines is they're so massive to do any thorough inspection. Let's say you have 100 turbines. To do an inspection on 100 turbines would take normally a lot of time. So what happens is that the operators uh, or owners, developers, depending who's owning at the time or who's going to buy it, um, they want to do an inspection. So they would take samples. Of so there's a hundred turbines out there. They'll sample five and then extrapolate out, and then come to some agreement with the insurance company about how much they're going to pay out. Hmm. With something like Skyspecs, uh, because they can scan each of the blades and the turbines within roughly 15 minutes per per turbine, uh, they can do a whole field of a whole farm of turbines in a day and have really detailed data. So it just changes the whole marketplace because now instead of sampling five out of the hundred, they can't do a hundred turbines in a day, but say they do 30 or 40 in a day. So within three days, they're going to scan every single turbine that's on that site and have detailed data where uh, turbine one is fine, but turbine five, 22 and 14 and 38 all have these issues that you wouldn't have caught otherwise because you're doing random selections. So it does change the marketplace because now the next owner of that turbine site or the, the current owner one gets insurance to collect and to, to fix those turbines. If they're going to sell it, they're going to sell a, a product that has been, you know, has been brought up to snuff before the transaction happens. So it helps everybody, right? But it does put a little bit more onus on the OEMs to make sure those, um, those wind turbines, you know, at least get through that warranty period without many difficulties. So there's, you know, it's a catch-22 there a little bit on the OEM side. Uh, but for somebody like SkySpecs, it makes a, a, a lot of sense where they can come in and quickly do a, a number of inspections, accurate inspections, and it just gives everybody data, right? All, our whole world right now is depending upon data to make smart decisions, and I, I don't know how anybody would do without actually looking at each turbine. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah, no, that's a uh, – yeah, it's that makes a lot of sense, and obviously the, the faster you can get them all assessed and – Oh, get yeah. that process done, that's going to be way easier. Of course, I'm sure, you know, five years ago when there were no drone inspections or 10 years ago, whenever it was, it was a huge process. Like, yeah, let's get 100 men out on ropes and climb. Like, that's yeah, not terrible, possible, terrible, right? terrible, terrible process. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of guys going down on ropes and they're, you know, doing a visual inspection. They can't do nearly as much as a drone can do, especially from sky specs. Those things run so fast and take so much data. There's no way a human could do that. No way. Yeah. So there's a, a really interesting article I want to I want to cover today. It's called How Digital Twins Could Transform the Wind in, uh, Energy Industry. It's by Subankar Pal, um, who's a, a guest contributor to, the, to their site. Um, and basically, the article is about how um, with obviously these physical assets like a wind turbine, um, you're essentially can think of the data that you harvest from it with enough really good, like high quality sensors making a yeah. digital twin or a digital mirror of the assets. I'll, I'll read mm-hmm. a a line from, you know, that says, so So this information can be sent via the cloud to a piece of software for interpretation and scrutiny, either in the form of a 3D digital representation or raw data. So basically, they're taking all this data and saying, here's what this data looks like as a three-dimensional representation of the wind turbine. Um, I don't know why I said turbine. Turbine. Um, <laughs> don't need to throw in the, in the British accent. Uh, how do you feel about this? Uh, that sort of like breaks my brain a little bit. How do you feel about this? 
Well, it's similar to what we have already done on aircraft in a sense where, especially on helicopters, anything that rotates vibrates. And so a rotating wind turbine blade, there's always vibration and shaking and stresses and loads. A helicopter is very similar. Um, it sounds like what we, uh, like Sikorsky did years ago, they got these health and monitoring systems on there where they're sensing for unusual vibrations. They know what a good vibration is because the helicopter is always shaking. So you, you look for good vibrations when you see something start to, to wander from what normal is. You can flag it and catch it early before something bad happens or catastrophic happens. Uh, but in that system, it's just shoving out data. It doesn't really tell you exactly what's going on on, on the helicopter. And it sounds like in this wind turbine application where they've, they've got this virtual twin, um, they're trying to take the data or they have a bunch of sensors on the wind turbines. They're trying to take that data and provide a visual image of what's actually happened. That's probably the most difficult part for anybody who is working in O&M is to visualize what this sensor data actually means in terms of reality. I, I, you know, Dan, maybe if you see a bunch of just raw data on a chart, what does it mean? Yeah, I just I go blind. I go blind, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. What does this mean? What, are, what does it mean? I got to change the bearings in this wind turbine or does it mean I just need to change the fuse over here? I, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Right. I, probably. And that's probably where they're going. I, if you could create a, a virtual wind turbine and, and say, hey, point to the area where you think the issues are, maybe the areas where there may be problems. Uh, obviously, using previous data to help pinpoint where new problems can occur. That's not a bad move. Right. Yeah. Well, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, like all those futuristic movies where all like the war rooms. Right. It's got like they have this big table. And they, like, <laughs> manipulate all the little screens. Like, they're moving it around in a symphony. I was actually watching uh, Minority Report. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Which was terrible as a movie. What? It was terrible. I actually no, listened. No, what? Oh, I listened my gosh. slash read the book by Philip K. Dick. And I really enjoyed it. It was, like, a very intelligent, <laughs> you know, like, and they changed so much of it. Now, was the movie visually, like, fun? Absolutely. Um, okay. But anyway... But, That's you know, a Tom he's, Cruise he's, movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not how many Tom, bad Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise yeah. movie? I'm not a huge right. fan of Tom Cruise. He's insane. Doing all this crazy... Anyway. Mission Impossible? He's a good actor. All right. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> I have a tough... I, I'm not a huge action movie person, so I have a tough time separating the fact that he's like an insane person in real life versus, uh, you know, his characters. He's he an is, actor. He is, he is a good actor. Yeah. He, okay. acts, he acts the same person in his movies, and then he's insane in real life. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, but in, in that movie, he's like, you know, the first, one of the first, um, scenes is him like manipulating the data from the precogs who, if you've never seen Minority Report or, or read the book, I highly recommend the book. It's only like a five hour audiobook, not super long, but basically the premise here getting off, getting off task is that, uh, Tom Cruise's character runs the pre-crime unit, which, uh, there's, there's these three basically mutated humans who can see into the future and they spit out this data into um they basically say like this murder is going to happen so then the pre-crime unit goes out there and arrests the person before they commit the murder um and of course in the book it's like all crimes it's not just murder in the in the movie it's only murder but 
So Tom Cruise is like visualizing. He's he's got this visual big glass screen that shows the readout of the data of like basically what the precogs, you know these these beings seeing in the future are seeing. He's like trying to like make it make it make sense. And so I feel like that's kind of what this is. Like obviously like so many of those futuristic movies have these things where it's like this table where they're visualizing the data. It's like these big table computers or holographic computers. But this kind of reminds me of the same thing where uh, you could have like you walk into this big room that's like your dedicated virtual digital twin room and there's your whole wind farm like in augmented reality operating you can see how every you know how fast every blade's spinning like where they're oriented all that stuff and it'll tell you you know the bearings are you know getting a little hot on this one or like this one's you know all those sensors are giving you all this data and you can say oh turbine number 17 Looks like he needs some attention next week. He's been, you know, running a little, little sluggish or whatever it is. And so it's, uh, it's kind of like Iron Man, right? You ever seen Iron Man? You're, you're no, not a Robert no. Downey Jr. fan either. Oh my God! I do like Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> but I, I just like am not in the movie slash TV world in the last <laughs> bunch of years. Infinity wa- War, the most popular movie no, ever. I watched him. Oh. In, uh, I watched him on the Joe Rogan podcast, which I, which I liked. He seems like a very thoughtful. Um, good dude but he may be a great dude but uh, you know iron man infinity wars avengers none of it i'm not as just, i'm not as nerdy as you all right i'm not a this is not nerd most I mean, of the world has seen it you're in the slight sliver of society that has not seen it if there's up, anybody that's up, the nerd you're getting, up, you're getting upset which is just <laughs> giving me more you're validating my my nerd my nerd uh your nerd instinct, nerd huh? la- my nerd labeling of you. That's all. Um, <laughs> I'm not sensitive. You're sensitive, right? right that's not right. how it works, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I was a, I was a Spider-Man kid growing up, and I, I like oh the Spider-Man movies, but they're like, they keep changing. Where it's, it's like a new the same Spider-Man movie all the time. every time. Yeah, I've seen the same movie three times. Come on. I agree. I agree. Um, anyway, I digress. But this idea seems pretty interesting. Where because again, yeah, actually, like it was yeah. just like this stream of data into spreadsheets, and like what human being has the the i mean obviously some of these data scientists do but this seems like it would make sense going forward to have a yeah, tra- translating data yeah, to reality sure. is such the is the hardest part of anything right it's just like your iphone it's a bunch of noise in the backside but it's translated to something that you could actually use it sounds very it's it's similar to that right anything that gets to a good user interface it's going to be successful uh, well it and, also opens up yeah up these jobs potentially to people that aren't just the ones who are gifted enough to be able to stare at just raw, raw data. Exactly. But in all seriousness, I mean, there's a lot of people who are very visual learners or very, yeah. you know, auditory learners world. or whatever. Yeah. And this could yeah. say, Oh, I could do this job. Whereas sure. in reality, you know, 10 years ago, it's like, I don't want to, you know, just be looking at data streams all day and, and spreadsheets or, you know, all that. So that, that's interesting. It could potentially open this up to a lot of other people. Yeah, it could. Um, Last thing I want to cover today is uh, Vestas. So it says when Vestas, yeah. uh, when Giant Vestas is cutting, it uh, looks like about 400 jobs. Um, so obviously some more downturns for the industry just because of coronavirus and all the potential implications. And I think some companies are trying to get out ahead of it. So um, what are your thoughts? I understand why they're doing it. I understand the financial implications. Or they're trying to make sure the company is secure financially as they go forward. And once the coronavirus thing tampers down hopefully by the end of this year you know we can all get back at it again but in the meantime 
man, it just delays all the all the great things that they've been working on, and uh, it pushes everything to the right. So, and in the wind turbine industry, uh, new techniques, designs, improvements are just part of that industry. When you take 400 people off the playing field it just slows down the whole industry so it not only hurts economically because all those people have to find something else to do or just kind of find other work you hate to lose them you want them to come back right you will you want everybody to come back to where they were to get the, the everything up and running again but man it's a, it's a big blow because it's hard to find good people in wind it's such a specific field and you had to take a specific skill set a lot of times to do the things that they're doing once you lose those people, it's not like you can always get them back. So it just sets back companies. We send that in aircraft every every seven years. It goes through cycles, and a lot of good people go off and say, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going to be an industry that's cyclical like that. And they'll go find something that's more stable, go work for a government somewhere. Um, and it just drives it drives, it, it drives slow periods in the economy and improvements in the world. It just does. You see it down there in Washington, D.C., right? How are, things in Washington, D.C. are pretty stable government-wise. The most stable job yeah. is probably be working for the government. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, – I, I do assume there's probably a lot of stability here in the city because a lot of lawyers who I assume are probably yeah. still doing the same work. Uh, there's a lot of government jobs, obviously, like the IRS is here, like all these big agencies are here. There's a lot of nonprofits. Those ones are probably a little more um, questionable in this in this climate um but yeah those are those are three big ones for sure yeah yeah you just hate to see it there's a lot of tech over here as well just in the dmv area the the dc metro virginia so yeah well hopefully hopefully though that at least in the wind turbine industry we can get back going again and obviously if you're working in an industrial site which most of these wind turbine places are quasi-industrial, depending on what part of the business you're working in. You can be close to work with somebody else as you're trying to assemble these in the cells and generators and things of that sort. So you don't want to be working that close together. And some part, it makes sense that you're going to tr- provide some separation, but you know, layoffs are a different story. Everybody's going home. That's not good. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think one of the big questions is like, if there's any of these startup companies, like obviously there's a lot of startup uh like drone inspection companies in the, in the yep. wind sector there's I, obviously there, it takes a lot more capital to get into the you know the manufacturing blades or, or manufacturing wind turbines themselves but a lot of these small companies are probably maybe not going to survive or they're gonna have to really pivot heavily and quickly to to survive the downturn so it's gonna be interesting they to will. see how that plays out yeah yeah but, it's gonna be interesting times right we're in interesting times well, on the one, I mean, I think the one thing that's, uh, and this is, I'm speaking probably a little bit from ignorance, but I mean, it seems like the inspection repair stuff, at least for the technicians themselves, is a highly specialized job. Yeah. I mean, is. so I think they're still probably hopefully going to be in still heavy, very heavy demand as they start to ease restrictions. Because I assume as soon as a, a lot of these restrictions are eased, they're going to be sending repairmen back out real quick to get these turbines looked at that haven't had any yeah. attention the last couple of months. Yeah, it's a it's a big part of the industry. Uh, the springtime, at least in the northern hemisphere, as things warm up over the wintertime, it's very hard to go out and do repairs or to do inspections for that matter. So now's the time where everybody usually is getting to go it's a April, lovely, May. lovely time to be 800 feet off the ground dangling from a rope. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's above freezing. <laughs> so it beats being out there when it's zero outside. Uh, so you'll see a lot of, of activity typically this time of year. So it's like April, May, June, right? This is the big go out there and, and fix stuff that happened uh, over the wintertime. 
So if everybody is sitting at home waiting to get back to work, they're going to have more work by the time they get out there. So they're going to be really busy once the, some of the restrictions have been lifted. Yeah. And if anyone's out there listening and you want to take me on like a ride along to go up the turbine (laughs) and I'll even repair it, I'll work for free. I'd be terrified. So I might need a second, like a adult diaper or something. But, um, if you want to bring me along, just, uh, Send us a, send us an email, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just 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 put, hit me up. Put a GoPro on your helmet and go. Oh, for sure. It would be it would be a fascinating experience, and I I do. Oh, try, yeah, I mean, cool. once you learn all the safety stuff, and yep. I mean, these guys with the ropes, uh, the rigging is pretty incredible, and they know what they're doing to, to stay safe. There's a lot of redundancy and very high skill. I mean, like again, that's a very technical job. A lot of training, um, but that'd be, pretty, training. that'd be pretty cool to be on top of one of those things yeah the the views are amazing so so open invitation if you want to have me come along just dm dan right just let me just let me know yeah so all right now we're gonna wrap up but um another good episode if you're out there listening thank you for being here on the uptime podcast uh just as a reminder leave us a review for the show um you can find us on spotify itunes uh youtube so for full episodes on video and for short clips as well we kind of chop the show up into topical clips just so when you're uh, just on the move and you don't have time for a whole 30, 40 minute episode, you can grab a quick bite. Um, and be sure to v- uh, visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com. And obviously at all of our social media outlets, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, we are at WG Lightning. Alan, you want to sign us off today? Well, thanks everybody for listening. This has been the Uptime Podcast. Check us out on the web. All right. See you next time.